Hey, I'm Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Gyms are completely closed in Toronto, despite original city recommendations that just fitness classes be shut down. Why? Lockdowns versus herd immunity. Do they actually work? And Facebook is taking a stance on posts related to anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. That's coming up. Let's get to it. Thank you so much for spending some of your time on this Tuesday after our Canadian Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Obviously, it probably wasn't what you were expecting. Probably wasn't like your 2019 Thanksgiving. But, you know, there's got to have been some silver linings for you. There must have been as you started thinking about it. You know, last year in 2019, I had a house full of my family. This year, just the immediate family. And, of course, I missed my mom, I missed my dad, missed my sisters, missed the nieces, nephews, everybody. Missed everybody. But I'll tell you what, it was easier doing the washing up. Am I right or am I right? It was a little calmer, wasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I probably consumed several thousand calories fewer than I would have normally. Just because, you know, when my mom's involved, there's just more cheese always on the table. I don't understand that. Dr. Williams is with us. He doesn't understand that. And there's some things I don't understand either, Dr. David Williams, our medical officer of health. And I'll take you through some of that in our next hour. Some things that I don't understand. Things I don't understand with Dr. David Williams. I don't understand that. He doesn't understand that. Let's check the numbers. Of course, the numbers, you got a two for today, two for one, with the numbers from Monday and Tuesday coming out together. Here's how it breaks down. 746 cases today, 807 cases on Monday, all of those beneath the 1,000 range that we saw late last week. And, you know, that is some good news, but as I always say, don't put too much stock in those daily numbers. Here's the more concerning number, and this is a number that is uh, combined over Monday and Tuesday, and that is hospitalizations over the last 48 hours have gone up 27, 27 more, and the ICU number has gone up 7, is now at 60. Keep in mind, 150 is our key number there. Anything over 150, it becomes increasingly difficult to do scheduled surgeries in hospitals because all of the ICU units are going to be taken up by people who have COVID. Our test numbers yesterday, 31,233, and our pending number finally is getting down at 24,400. Over the course of the weekend, it's obvious that the uh, clinicians have been able to process a lot of those tests because that testing number, that pending number, was stubbornly in the mid-50,000 all last week. So that is coming down. So there's a couple of pandemic silver linings, as I talked about. Thanksgiving, there's one. Here's another pandemic silver lining for those of you who, like me, uh, have a gym membership and are consistently looking for an excuse not to go to the gym. What's my reason today? Well, you don't have to come up with that anymore if you live in Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel because, of course, gyms are now closed as part of the strategic rollback to stages of stage two, parts of stage two for Toronto Ottawa and Peel. And I joke about that because, you know, obviously if you're a gym member, you know, that you're trying to get there is part of it. But 
there are real implications for uh, for business owners and for employees, people who work in gyms. There's a lot of people who do, you know, have jobs like that, and they just got reopened. They just got going again, and now they are shut down completely. And the question I think I have for you is, why is it that the province decided it needed to go farther than Toronto wanted? You, of course, know that the city of Toronto put out a request for the province to do a bunch of different things, and the province dithered for a week and then finally did it. But in some cases, it went further. This was the request from the Toronto Medical Officer of Health, from Eileen DeVille. This was the request a week ago Friday that Recreation Sports and Gyms, this is under this title, Recreation Sports and Gyms, given Toronto's data concerning exposures, clusters, and outbreaks in fitness clubs, I strongly recommend that all indoor group classes in gyms be discontinued. Also, it goes on to recommend that indoor activities for recreation and sports teams be discontinued. But what it doesn't say here is that you close all gyms. We're talking about fitness clubs. And so the province, a week later, announces that it is, and here I read from the press release from the province, closing indoor gyms and fitness centers completely. you got to be kidding me. That is the response from a lot of gym owners. Doug Ford there weighing in. A lot of gym owners in Toronto, Peel and Ottawa, who are saying, wait a second, maybe the fitness classes, but why are you shutting this thing down completely? And even in some cases where they're running fitness classes, you know, owners are saying, we have done the work. We have put in the plexiglass, and we got the cleaning, and we got this thing, and we got that thing. And meanwhile, we have this story out of Hamilton, about 100 people may now have been exposed to the virus after attending a class in a Hamilton spin studio earlier this month. So that there you have your class issue, your fitness class issue, and how it spreads amongst classes. Where did I say that was? I said it was in Hamilton. So that spin studio, despite that, could still operate. Other spin studios in Hamilton can continue to operate. They have not been placed back into a portion of stage three as Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel has. So what's going on with fitness clubs, and and what's the reaction from instructors and from owners as this new reality sinks in that gyms, once again, are completely shut down? Lauren Ravesbottom is a fitness instructor at Drop Boxing Group and joins me on the line. Hi, Lauren. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm sorry to hear that your club has been shut down again. I'm just wondering what your reaction to the announcement from the province has been. It's disheartening. Um, You know, just a week prior to the new shutdown, obviously, we were given 24-hour notice to realize that we now had a 10-person class capacity, which at Dropboxing specifically, we were already operating at half capacity, which was 18 people. Uh, Within that, everyone was spaced six feet apart. Um, No one was ever sharing equipment. We had rigorous cleaning protocols in place. And the feedback from our members over, you know, the last couple months of doing that had been so positive and everyone felt really safe. And even as they come into the gym, everyone was wearing a mask. Uh, They have their temperature taken. They answer a questionnaire. So we had really rigorous protocols in place. And it seemed to be working. We hadn't had a single case uh, within our studio, which was 
the case for a lot of studios in Toronto. And to then have that reduced down to 10 is, if you understand the group fitness model, not sustainable by any means. Um, And that was disheartening in itself. And then just a week later, once again, with less than 24 hour notice, we were told to shut our doors entirely. And for people who rely on these spaces as a really important mental and physical outlet, which for most of our members, that absolutely is the case. This is a pretty devastating blow because just for studios to reopen following the first lockdown, the cost of all that PPE, so from the plexiglass to the electrostatic sprayers and all the cleaning equipment and all the new protocols was 10 grand to potentially 20 grand or more. Uh, depending if you are working with plexiglass installations, which a lot of spin studios are doing. And that was after months of limited to no revenue. So already business owners are working with such limited margins and they're doing everything they can in order to operate a safe space within all the government recommendations. And then to seemingly be doing that successfully and have all this amazing feedback and Of course, no government officials or anyone had stepped foot into the spaces to see if it was working to then be hit with another shutdown. And the relief just isn't enough to keep these businesses alive. It's a really scary concept because group fitness might not survive this as an industry. And it's increasingly problematic that fitness studios are being lumped into the same category as big box gyms, because if you've been in a big box gym versus being in a group fitness studio, you'll understand that they operate very differently. And as a result, they should be defined differently because the way we proactively manage the space from the moment a member walks in the door to the class that they take to when they leave, everything is controlled and closely watched and no one has just free reign over the space. And if they are moving freely in the space, they have a mask on. So at the point in which they have their mask off while they are training, they are in their position. They are not sharing any equipment. Everyone is extremely respectful and receptive to the new guidelines because they care about keeping these spaces open. And that's not the case for big box gyms where the onus is more on each person to make sure they're cleaning things and make sure that they're maintaining distance. In the case of a group fitness studio, we are very much in control of that space. But Lauren, let me just uh, let me just jump in there here because uh, the, the the argument will be as we you know pointed out this spin studio in Hamilton mm-hmm. that in these fitness clubs that you know in these smaller um, you know group settings you're indoors. Mm-hmm. You're in a relatively small space, and regardless about the cleaning of the equipment or the plexiglass, the evidence continues to show that droplets can remain in the air in an indoor space for some time. And isn't that the concern? It's hard because I know in the case of the Hamilton studio, at least from what I've read, they were still operating with a much larger capacity than what we were dealing with. So I believe they were at 50% capacity, and I'm not sure on what PPE measures they had in place. Uh, In their case, the instructor was entirely asymptomatic, which, as we know, is a potential problem because a lot of people aren't showing symptoms. That being said, I know, at least specific to Toronto, there's a lot of studios that haven't had a single case. And in the off chance that some of them have, I think there's been a few that come to mind. Uh, They proactively managed it right away. They were able to contain it right away. They shut down for a week as they did a thorough clean. And because our studios are so uniquely positioned for contact tracing in the sense that we know exactly who comes in and when, 
um, they were able to alert their communities accordingly and keep everyone really well informed. And they were very transparent about everything. And then they were able to reopen their doors safely. So it's hard to compare that. Obviously, with fitness, it's very easily to identify and isolate these instances because, again, the contact tracing is really amazing. Um, but then when you see people moving freely through, you know, the LCBO or through Walmart or the mall, you know that those measures aren't in place. So there could be outbreaks happening all the time. And unfortunately, you just would never know. Uh, and I think fitness is kind of put under a really negative spotlight because of that. But in the instances where something has happened, although Spinco is obviously a higher number, uh, because I think it is a very tight-knit community. In the instances it's happened in Toronto, it's been so well-managed and proactively managed. And again, in a lot of cases, spin studios or studios in general have had no cases. And we haven't actually seen the evidence so far, at least with the numbers that are being referenced, to indicate that fitness studios specifically are a hotspot or a high-risk environment. We are quite often lumped in with hospitality, uh, and even restaurants being lumped in with bars is potentially problematic because, again, those are two very different environments. And it's the same thing for gyms and group fitness studios to be classified together. And then for them all to be classified together as one, I think there's a number that's gone around saying 44% or, or something like that. It's just not really representative of the group fitness environment. And we, we've been pleading with the government to show us the data that indicates that our environments are unsafe for the public, especially as all these businesses and all these environments, schools, et cetera, are trying really hard to operate within these new restrictions. Lauren Raysbottom is a fitness instructor with Drop Boxing, which is in downtown Toronto, and as the new measures have been put in place by the province, is now shut down. Lauren, great to talk to you. All the best. I hope you get to open up again soon. Thank you so much. It is time to confront some of the misinformation that is out there about lockdowns and how effective they are. There is a new report in the National Post today that says that sweeping lockdowns across the United Kingdom could lead to more COVID-19 deaths and an actual prolonging of the pandemic. That's according to a new study. Quote, lockdown does not mean that the number of deaths go down, so there is a short-term gain, but it leads to long-term pain, according to the lead author of this report. Quote, if you had done nothing, it would all be over by now. It would have been absolutely horrendous, but it would be over. It wouldn't even have to have been completely lunatic to do nothing Unquote. And in this study, the authors suggest that rather than a sweeping lockdown and generalized social distancing, young people should be allowed to go to school while older groups are made to quarantine. And it would allow young people to build up what is known as herd immunity while protecting the most vulnerable populations. To try and get a bead on the accuracy of all of that, and what does it really mean, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Christopher Labos, who is an epidemiologist and cardiologist. Welcome, doctor. Hi there. So, in terms of lockdowns, when we say herd immunity, what are we actually talking about? Well, herd immunity is basically this idea that if enough people in the population are immune, uh, you will then end up protecting the people who are not immune. So, if you can get 80, 90% of the population to be immune to a virus, 
um, the small number of people who are not immune are going to be protected because they're in the middle of the herd and the virus can, can't see them. And then the virus has nowhere to spread to, so the virus dies out. So this, it's this idea that if enough people are immune, the virus has no one to spread to. The conventional wisdom is that that is not a wise idea because it would simply overwhelm the healthcare system and we'd find ourselves in a position where we're just turning people away from hospitals and leaving them to die. Right, that, that's exactly that. I mean, if you to, to allow herd immunity to happen just by simply letting the virus spread, um, a number of people are going to have to get sick, a number of people are going to have to be in hospital, a number of people are going to die, and the, sort of the human cost of that is almost too extreme to, to, uh, to contemplate. What's your reaction to this study that says that, yes, yeah, sure, we keep the deaths down in the short term, but in the long term, the deaths may be higher than doing precisely what we're talking about, which is letting uh, herd immunity be achieved? Well, I mean, I, I, for, frankly, I, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's true. I mean, we have a lot of deaths now as it is, if you can, and we still only have about 10 to 20% immunity in the entire population. To achieve 80 to 90% immunity, first of all, um, millions of people would have to get infected. Thousands of people, at least in this country, would die. Probably millions of people worldwide would have to die. So the sheer scope of that is almost unthinkable. And the other thing is that, that assumes that immunity is going to last forever. Uh, there's more and more evidence that immunity maybe lasts for a few months. So it seems increasingly, I mean, here's the thing, I mean, if you can get reinfected a year later, if your immunity wanes after a few months, then we're never going to achieve herd immunity that way. So I think the entire argument is is fundamentally flawed in, in a rather significant way. So there, there is that push from people who are opposed to lockdowns, um, th- there's that angle, and then there's this other thing that came out from the World Health Organization, and this has now been retweeted for, by everybody, from Maxime Bernier to Donald Trump to uh, uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta. I want to play a portion of an interview with uh, Dr. David Nobaro, who is from the World Health Organization, and here he is talking about lockdowns. I want to say it again. Uh, We in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of this virus. The only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganize, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted. But by and large, we'd rather not do it. That is Dr. David Nobaro from the World Health Organization, and on the line I am speaking with Dr. Christopher Labos, who is an epidemiologist. What's your takeaway from that? Is that actually a change from the World Health Organization? Well, I mean, I think sort of key in that statement was that he said, you know, we'd rather not do it. And of course, nobody would, 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 would you know, do that as their first uh, as their first choice. But in many situations, it becomes inevitable. If you have a good contact tracing system, if you can identify positive cases and have them self-isolate, then you don't need to do a lockdown because the number of infectious cases stays low. But when the number of infectious cases starts to get uh, out of control, sometimes temporary lockdowns, at least for short periods of time, uh, become necessary. So while I understand that they're not ideal in many situations, preventing people from gathering in large groups is one of the you know, probably more effective ways to prevent the virus from spreading quickly. And we have to acknowledge, at least in our current situation, uh, we have been seeing rising numbers of cases. So you know, better to react now than to uh, be reactive later. I want to uh, talk about one other thing that uh, popped up in the news today, and this was this late-stage study, uh, Johnson & Johnson, a vaccine candidate, um, has 
tested or has come up with some unexplained illness. That is what Johnson is Johnson is saying, and that is uh, now caused the study to stop. What, what does that mean? What does a unexplained illness mean in this case? Well, it, all it really means is that they didn't want to say the name in the press release. Um, side effects during clinical trials. Uh, honestly, they happen all the time, and this is the usual protocol. Uh, studies get halted for the Data and Safety Monitoring Review Board to look over the data and decide if the study goes forward or not. So this is sort of routine practice. Uh, the only difference is is that when studies are temporarily halted, they usually don't make front-page news. So, um, you know, in a large trial like this, this is to be expected. It's not really anything concerning uh, because we don't know what the illness is. We don't know if it was actually related to the vaccine and may turn out to be nothing. Uh, You know, Johnson & Johnson is just announcing that their trial is on hold as per the predefined protocol. So um, everything in reality is working the way it's supposed to. Uh, We'll see with time if this is a real side effect related to the vaccine or not. And we'll see if... um, We'll see if, uh, you know, this ends up having any uh, important long-term clinical implications. It's possible that it will, uh, but it's possible that it won't. And even if this particular vaccine doesn't make it to market, there are many other vaccine candidates out there. And so one presumes that at least one of them will make it to market. And the, the reality is that probably we will have multiple vaccines, you know, within the course of the next year. Yeah, and many people saying just the fact that it is being um, halted for this should give the public some reassurance that it is going through, these vaccines are going through all the trials and jumping through all the hoops that they need to. I just want to circle back just quickly for a final question about misinformation because we began talking about lockdowns. And there, is, as we have a second wave here in Ontario and in Canada, there's, a, there's a, I think, a more concerted pushback against the measures that have been implemented in the past couple of days. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to what you see in terms of all of the different kinds of information swirling out there and how it is as the public that we can really latch on to what is true. Well, I mean, I think if you, if you're if there's any doubt about what is true and what isn't, I mean, the best thing is to get your information from reputable news sources, either from the government websites or from trusted media agencies. Um, if you're getting your information from some random person on Facebook, um, there is probably good reason to at least take a second look and and really fact check the stuff that's being posted because. A lot of the stuff that's on the Internet is frankly not not true. So when someone tells you that masks are dangerous and can make you, you know, faint or or make your lungs explode, which I have seen on the Internet, um, that is not true. That is not a true statement. So when you see stuff that seems a little suspect, especially if it's coming from an unverified uh, source, maybe fact check that and check with, you know, websites and organizations that are committed to sort of evidence-based medicine. So CDC in the U.S., Health Canada here in Canada, and, you know, the major news organizations, which in Canada, I think to a very large extent, are following the principle of using scientific facts to back up anything that they put on their on their pages. Well said, Doctor. I appreciate your spending some time with us today. Thank you again. My pleasure. Take care. Stay safe. That is Dr. Christopher Lebos, who is a cardiologist and epidemiologist. Facebook has banned posts that deny or distort the Holocaust. And this move is the latest attempt by the company to take action against conspiracy theories and misinformation. The company says people searching for information about the Nazi genocide will be directed to authoritative sources. 
Holocaust survivors around the world have lent their voices recently in a campaign directly targeting CEO Mark Zuckerberg, urging him to take action and to remove Holocaust denial posts. And this is a change for Zuckerberg, this recent move by Facebook, because in 2018, Zuckerberg said of Holocaust denial posts, quote, I find it deeply offensive, but at the end of the day, I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think there are things that different people get wrong. I don't think they're intentionally getting it wrong. And those remarks led to an enormous public backlash. On Monday, as Facebook changed its policy, Zuckerberg wrote that he had changed his mind. Quote, My own thinking has evolved as I have seen data showing an increase in anti-Semitic violence. But was this an evolution of thinking, or more was it a campaign driven by a boycott by advertisers that led to this change? Nevertheless, should we celebrate it or should we condemn it as too little too late? Michael Levitt is president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center and joins me on the line. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon, Alan. How are you today? I'm well. Is this reason to celebrate this move by Facebook? Listen, this is a starting point. And as you say, there had been a, a, a campaign, an international campaign that included the voice of Holocaust survivors uh, and uh, organizations internationally to bring about this particular action. Um, Mark Zuckerberg had, had it wrong. He had it wrong, unequivocally wrong. And we're seeing now, I think, uh, a lauding of this decision uh, and a hopefulness that this decision will actually lead to more action uh, being taken to combat online anti-Semitism because uh, uh, this is lurking in, in the darkest corners, not just of uh, the, you know, the, the, the lesser used social media platforms uh, that, that are kind of uh, places where conspiracy theorists and Holocaust deniers gather, but also on mainstream social media platforms. Facebook, Twitter, and others. So um, this is this is a start. It's it's a recognition that he had gotten it wrong in the past. He, he said that in his uh, in his post yesterday. Uh, but there's a lot more to do, Alan. There's a lot more to do. This might be obvious to you know to, to a lot of people, but I think it's important to point it out. Why is it vital that we continue to keep our eye on the actual true historical record of what happened in Nazi Germany to the Jews? Well. You just have to look at the fact that based on a study done by the Azrieli Foundation uh, in 2019, one-fifth of Canadian youth did not know what the Holocaust was. Two-thirds didn't know how many Jews had died in the Holocaust, or they underestimated the number of Jews that had died. That, this is the problem. Our, our, our youth, our young people, um, are too distant. They're too distant from the Holocaust, from the lessons, uh, and from uh, the voices of Holocaust survivors. And the reality is, Alan, that the voices of survivors, the first-person voices of survivors, are diminishing each and every year. There's just not so many of them around. So 
if youth are going to the internet and they're googling or they're getting this uh, uh, these uh, uh, these uh, disingenuous posts on Facebook and other places, um, this is where they're learning. This is where they're getting their information. And we must, we must ensure that the memory of the Holocaust lives in each and every one of us and each and every one in, of, of our youth. That is our duty. That is our duty to protect it from never, ever being able to happen again. Is, is this just simply a question of those ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it? I mean, that's, that's uh, listen, you just have to look at what's going on in the world uh, right now um, and in Canada right now and the rise of anti-Semitism and hate, hate of all kinds. We, we know that in times of crisis, uh, like a pandemic, these voices um, uh, become, they come out from the shadows. Uh, and anti-Semitism has always, always been the canary in the coal mine. But we're also seeing attacks on not just the Jewish community, the Muslim community. We're seeing threats made just this past weekend that closed the doors of a local mosque in Toronto. We're seeing threats against the black community. I mean, this hate thrives in times of crisis, and that is why it is so important that the lessons of the Holocaust um, are delivered, uh, again, reliably. And, and you know, the, Facebook has said that they're going to redirect, uh, uh, you know, uh, people that look up uh, the sites of deniers. They're going to redirect them to reliable information on the Holocaust. And we can only hope uh, that, that this is going to um, enlighten and, uh, and, and bring, uh, you know, uh, truth, uh, to the informa- truth to the information that these, ch- these, uh, these youth and others are looking up online, because unfortunately we know that it's spreading. And let me just say one other thing. Um, back to you, Twitter. Back to you, Twitter, because that platform continues to allow individuals like Iranian Supreme Leader uh, Ali Khamenei to, uh, to preach hatred of Jews, Holocaust denial. There's actually an annual cartoon contest run by the government in Iran, um, which is uh, uh, it's focused on Holocaust denial, cartoons about the Holocaust. Every year we see it happen. So Twitter, back to you. Let's see real and meaningful action taken now that Mark Zuckerberg has, uh, has admitted his previous error. Now let's see Twitter do the same deplatform uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei and uh, and let's clean up the internet of, of this uh, online anti-Semitism. One of the things that is so disturbing for those that, that watch all of this and and I has really struck me is when you talk about you know groups like QAnon. Uh, and other conspiracy theorists, we see these anti-Semitic tropes that have been around for, in some cases, centuries, now peddled again under with slight different changes. And, you know, the whole thing about, you know, children uh, being grabbed and, you know, a, a pedophile ring, that all of that sort of stuff that comes from QAnon. Again, these are, these are anti-Semitic tropes that we have seen before. I had the opportunity to uh, to be in Israel at the Yad Vashem um, uh, Holocaust Museum uh, just in January uh, with a group of parliamentarians, actually. Uh, and we stood there and we looked at a number of the posters coming out of Nazi Germany, which, as you're describing, Alan, showed Jews with hoop noses and all the other vile uh, anti-Semitism that was pervasive during the time. And you're right, we are seeing much too much of that. 
uh, on online today. We're seeing accusations uh, being made uh, against Jewish community members. Uh, listen, Annamie Paul, uh, the, the new Green Party leader, was very outspoken about the anti-Semitism she faced during the Green Party leadership. Um, it was out in the open on, on Facebook. I am a, a former member of Parliament, faced similar accusations and similar attacks along with other Jewish MPs. Uh, this isn't a partisan issue. This is an issue that is pervasive in our society. We see the numbers of uh, hate attacks um, and incidences of hate rising. Uh, and again, we've seen attacks just this past weekend on the Muslim community, and we know that hate against one of us is hate against us all, and we need to be taking real and meaningful action as a society, as Canadians, and internationally. Um, there was recently launched by a group of international parliamentarians. I'm, the former, former, I'm a former parliamentarian on the group, but it's an interparliamentary, international interparliamentary task force to combat online anti-Semitism. These are very, very important times. And again, we must tackle hate, especially during this time of a pandemic when people are more susceptible, more panicked. And we know that this is the time that hate thrives, especially on the Internet. Michael Levitt, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. That is Michael Levitt, who is president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, talking about the fact that Facebook has now implemented a new policy banning posts that deny or distort the Holocaust. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.